This episode contains discussion of adult themes, which may be triggering to some and is not suitable for children. Today's guest lives and breathes change. After a series of major life events, she left the corporate world and set up her own coaching business. Her new memoir, Awkward is a New Brave, shares personal stories of overcoming an arsenal of her life's adversities. We chat about some of those adversities and laugh our way through some of the awkward situations she's found herself in and what she's learned from her year of being brave. Episode 47, Belle Lockerbie. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Thanks for coming on the podcast and having a chat. You're welcome. Happy to have a chat. You've written a, um, a new book. You're a new published author, which is Awkward is the New Brave, and it really holds personal stories about your heartbreak and grief and relationships and really finding your inner strengths. It's a very personal book yes. that you've written. Yes. What made you, what was the catalyst for wanting to sort of bear all and publish to everybody the whole the nitty the gritty whole of your enchilada. life? Yeah. Yeah. The whole enchilada. <laughs> Not um, a euphemism at all. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. There's, no. there's no references to food in the book at all. Um, <laughs> that wasn't the euphemism I was referring to. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Gosh, I know. Oh, there's a there's a whole story on on enchiladas in there as well. Don't you worry. Um, and it's embarrassing. So we can talk about that. So I had always like had on my heart that I wanted to write, and I guess similar to you know different pockets of people that I've spoken to, my, the messaging that I got growing up was you can never make money as a writer and you can't do this and you can't do that. So I chose different career paths. So that, so that was one of the parts of writing the book was I really wanted to prove that I could write a book. Um, and, and Who to was make telling that you that narrative? It came from different people. So it came from parents and I mean, they're, they're mm. well-meaning. So generally, I guess what I've learned over my journey of coaching and, you know, digging into this messaging side of things is generally, um, the adults in our lives, whether they're parents or counsellors from schools or wherever, tend to have our best interests at heart. But what they might be doing in an attempt to protect us doesn't necessarily um, honour our own dreams and visions. So they can sometimes inadvertently project that. Yeah, yeah. Pro- and project their own experiences so when you, when you think about like my father was born um like at the end of world war Two, so how he grew up was very different so he was all about get it like learn computing get a job in this industry and and do well and you'll never make you'll never make money as a writer so you kind of take guidance from those people mm. So I guess that was one thing was I wanted to I wanted to prove that I could write a book. So I toyed with ideas for books for ages. I actually have a children's book written but not published because I can't draw. <laughs> and you can't get an illustrator. Illustrators are expensive and I would want to honor the art. So that's just sitting in the pipelines for like a later a later date, but that's that was kind of like my first attempt. So when I finally kind of worked out the title, it was partly because if I go back a couple of steps, I was coaching females in business and I have been doing so for seven years and helping them basically go from grassroots and, and build up to be sustainable because in Western Australia there had been this big downturn in mining 
in the part of the region where I was operating, um, it became known as the single mum capital of the world. And in one of those, yeah, so not of the world of Australia, that's probably a bit extreme, but for Australia, it was the single mother capital of Australia at that point in time. So because the economy here had been so dependent on mining, there was a, a huge impact on jobs and also a lot of the women felt isolated and disconnected. So I loved doing that work in helping them kind of find their passion and recreate something that worked on their terms and, and really look at what they could do. So a young photographer, Amanda, was her name. She had worked as a geophysicist and her daughter was Being born. Being as in gems and stuff and mining. Oh, as and in, as in like, like mining related thermo Big kind dollars. of things. So yeah, so she so, and she'd worked in Singapore and all sorts of areas. Yeah. So she had a daughter which and her daughter has a condition called Noonan syndrome. So corporate was no longer a an option for her and she really needed to create something different. So we would often talk about how can you be you after you've been corporatized for quite a while? So how how it's can hard. you put yourself out there? It is hard. It's really because, hard yeah. because it's around owning who you are and remembering who you are. So in that moment, I had said to her in the workshop, there is great strength in choosing vulnerability, which I believe. Mm. And internally, I went, you are so full of crap. You are only doing this in business. You are not doing it in your entire life. So I made a commitment to really revise my definition of bravery and of vulnerability and to start to you know, explore those areas and what that looked like and set out to have basically a year of bravery in 2018. So then the book was published in 2019, which was a massive journey. How did you get into, if you were in the corporate world beforehand, Mm -hmm. how did you get into coaching? Oh, great question. So while I was in corporate, I worked in like offer development and, and design. We had a young grad come through our company and like there was there were a few things that happened all at once um so one I had my daughter and I kind of knew that I did not want to parent around the nine to five that was kind of one catalyst for things Mm -hmm. at the same time that I was planning my very short maternity leave because I was a primary earner my organized self had sat there with my with my phone I think it was like one of those old flip phones and prepared a text message to announce the arrival of of Abby my daughter whose birthday it was um just yesterday and I was still very heavily pregnant I was actually past my due date and I sent this message out to my entire address book (laughs) saying I'm proud you know Please announce the arrival of, and I just made up a nickname, not giving away the, the gender or anything. And then my older sister rings me and she says, like, he- like, hello. And I've gone, hi. And I sounded sheepish on the phone and she picked it up straight away. She's gone, you're still pregnant, aren't you? And I said, <laughs> yes. And she's just gone, you idiot. <laughs> So we've had a bit of a laugh. So you realised as soon as you sent it that oh, it had gone out. I'm staring out. at it going, how do you recall a text message? And, like, I could put it down to baby brain, but I couldn't. So she she had said to me, you're such an idiot. And I've gone, I know, I'm sorry. And then 
she went quiet and I said, is everything okay? And she, she said, I was going to wait. I wanted to wait until you'd had the baby, but I have news to tell you. And then her breath caught and I heard her sob and she said that she had cancer and that it was terminal and she was dying. So in that moment, everything kind of changed. It went from this joyous, silly moment to, oh, my gosh, the person that I would be reaching out to for advice on what do I do with, with this baby mm. potentially was not going to be there. And sadly, she passed away when Abby was around about five months old. So you've got like new mum So you really didn't have very grief. long? No, not at all. Not at all. It was it was really fast. How long, how long had she known before she told you? I think maybe she had known for one or two months and there mm-hmm. was these issues, like ongoing issues. So she was a mum of five children. She would quite often prioritise her kids over herself and her own issues that were going on and would be, you know, pestered by me to go and sort things out and put herself on the back burner. So I think it's important to realise that it's not always men who tend to say she'll be right mate sometimes women can do that as well yeah so they found out it was metastatic melanoma and what it had extended from was she'd had a skin cancer removed I think it was something like 12 years prior but they hadn't Mm. got it all and it had traveled Mm. through her blood system and attached itself to her major organs and slowly everything shut down and that was a really hard loss which over time made me kind of examine how I wanted to work and what I wanted to do. So going through grief and having a small daughter like really made me, I think personally kind of go like how, how many times do you need to go through trauma in life before you really make a change? Like what, mm. what else do you need to happen? So she was the, my third immediate family member to move, um, to lose at 34 years old. And that was, for me, that was a lot. So I'd lost my mother to depression at 19. I'd lost my father to cancer when I was 29. So here I am, this new mum, and kind of just going, I need, to ma- I need to make a change. I need to do things differently. And it took a few years to navigate that space. It wasn't just to quit my job because I couldn't. So at this point in time, the global financial crisis has happened. Mm. I was—I actually had a house in Melbourne at that point in time as well. So interest rates, I think, were up around like close to 10%. Mm. So on a half a million dollar house, it's a lot of financial pressure with a new baby where you know, half a million is cheap now. That's a cheap mortgage now. Back, back then it wasn't. But um For those that are outside of Melbourne, the average house price in Melbourne, I think it's I think it's eight fifty now, yeah. is it? Or it might have topped the million, I'm not sure. It's not not a cheap city to buy in. No. No, it's not. And that's a basic home. Yeah. Well this was like this is tiny. Um, with wonky floors and, you know, the hot the whole lot, but it was yeah. still was still a house. So the pressures yeah. the pressures were there. And um, I knew I wanted to do things different. So eventually, it took, it took until the, probably the birth of my son, we had a young graduate come in and she was um, reading this book called Strengths Finder and I didn't know what she was going to be doing. The, the communica- chain of communication hadn't made it all the way through to say the grads on your team are learning about this. 
But what it was was a celebration of looking at what's good about people and it was backed by um, over 50 years of research. I'd like I'd lose track of how much research goes into it now, but really that was about looking at what's good about people and helping focus on leveraging that. And at that point in time, there were no certified coaches in Australia in this space. So I kind of set out to create a bit of an escape plan, if you will, to kind of go, I'll pack up my family. I'll move back to Perth where my surviving family member was. I wanted my children to know their paternal grandparents because that was the only opportunity they had to, to get to know those members of the family. And I'm going to launch this business and help women in particular or people as like with the corporate spaces just know what's good about themselves and how do you start to leverage those talents. So it was a really big shift from a career perspective to kind of go, Mm. I'm going to carve things out and do it differently and walk away from the nine to five model because it just was not working for me and my family and, and not for how I wanted to show my children what life could look like. So it was a bit ballsy. Yeah, very ballsy. Did you start it as a side hustle or did you go all in balls to the walls? <laughs> I had so I had a couple of contracts lined up first, but I had set a date that it was like all in balls to the walls. And I kind of rationalized it by going, I live in Australia. If the worst like worst comes to worst, um, my kids love noodles, so that that they will be fine. Like we will I kind <laughs> Too of many went, noodles, think I, hard out, yeah. I, I ration like I kind of rationalized it to kind of go, this is a worst case scenario and will I be okay with that worst case scenario? And really yeah. had a lean startup. So I think my my Mac computer, which has since been replaced, was around eight years old. Um, I used like Google, it was just a really lean startup with a couple of clients to get going, and then it was just all in it's like 30th Mm. of June a couple of years back it's like I'm just going all in and I'm just going to trust that this this is going to work and it did which is wonderful um but business is not always sunshine and rainbows it's you know it's up and down and yeah and you did this in the GFC so 2008 yeah yeah so just uh, so probably around about 2011 would have been when I left corporate completely so 2008 was when my so my daughter was born in what I think with she was born 2008 so it took a couple of years before I actually went all like went and left everything or so not during in. the GFC yeah, yeah. Mm. okay so then when I got to having this year of bravery it was really about exploring what that looked like so what did it mean to get back out there and be vulnerable and reach out to people and say, you know what, I have been such a strong person. And I think sometimes if your identity gets wrapped up in being strong, when you Mm. kind of say, actually, I need some help with some stuff, people don't know what to do because they've seen you as this, as this one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So that can challenge people sometimes, but it's still important to reach out and have those conversations. So did you broach those conversations with saying, I need help and this is how you can help or was it just a conversation of complete vulnerability? I don't know how you can help me, but I, I'm struggling. I was, I've reached out to specific people for specific things. So around the emotional right. vulnerability, a really good friend of mine in the book, her name is Lauren. She was very open about talking about mental health and like her own mental health journey. 
So mm. I'd reached out to her almost as like a, I saw her as like a vulnerability champion in some ways, which she may not have seen in herself and said, look, I, I need help to actually get back out there and not just be brave in business, but be brave in other areas of life. And can you help me with that? Because I see that as a real strength and quality of you, like within you in terms of how you're so open and, and talk about things. So fortunately for me, she said yes, and she kind of became my bravery buddy as we tackled things. And I think that's something to remember is that it's, there's no harm in asking someone to go along on your journey with you and to find the right people to do things. So um, then it was like we started out with some like small and silly things. So for me, I wanted to learn how to surf. And it turns out that she is petrified of like wetsuits and gets quite claustrophobic, which I didn't know. So for her, it was her own journey around bravery. Yeah. Um, I'd talk to other people on the relationship front because I was a single mother at this point too. So you start to learn that as you look at these new areas, whether it's personal or professional growth, that that inner voice pops up saying what like what do you think you're doing so for me it was you're too old to be doing this you're carrying like an an excess 20 kilos who do you think you are going down to the ocean and surfing with all the dads because basically it's it's very male dominated at the the beach where I surf so you start to understand your internal chit chat a lot more and make I would kind of call it making friends with that mean girl to kind of go, yep, thank you. I acknowledge that you're here. I'm doing it anyway. And eventually that voice for that activity oh, disappears. It's interesting because I find myself listening to that voice and then probably not doing as much as I should. How did you learn to push through and not listen to that, that inner dialogue? that inner dialogue there's a a bit around recognizing it so to kind of understand where it's coming from so I I talk to some of my coaching clients around is it a red flag in terms of like a a danger you know you really need to look at the risks like if you're going down a dark alley and they're you know, there's, there could be danger down there versus is it a bit more of a red fear that's holding you back from really doing something? So um, the the common fears tend to be like fear of judgment, which it was for me. People are going to think I'm stupid yeah. and an idiot for doing this um, versus looking at the the joy side of it. So if I could fight through that fear, it's like, well, if I can learn to do this, it's like it's something I've always wanted to do. I may be terrible at it and for the record, I am a terrible surfer but I love it and it's great <laughs> and there's so many other benefits on the other side of that fear. Did you have any of the guys coming up and giving you pointers? No. But, well, I so I hired a surf coach to help me with it, Dougie. He's, he's kind of like if I'm to describe him, he's a little bit like Crocodile Dundee but with a surfboard. <laughs> so... <laughs> Very, very like take his knife out on the board with him. No, he'd be like, That's not a board, this is a board. (laughs) Um, but but he's very, like, very honest. So, when I was out there at one point, and this this may rub some people the wrong way, I don't know, but this is just like the essence of who he is. (laughs) You'd hear him yell from the foreshore, Oi, girly, what are you doing? You're flopping around on that board like a wet fish. Get in here and practice on the sand. <laughs> and you're going to catch something. So sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear or not. But he'd just be like, yes, you are. 
that was shit. What are you doing? <laughs> but I would end up. I in... think what people don't understand oh. is that there are a lot of Aussies that are very salt of the earth, yeah. and we're a very honest people so that is not not necessarily offensive he's just cutting through the bullshit and be like you need to sort yourself out (laughs) no but the thing the thing was because I like I would find his um guidance so funny I would end up in stitches and not be able to see anything on the board it's like I would my I would just be crying from laughing so the, much. It's the flapping around like a wet fish yeah. comments. The, oh. oh my goodness. Yeah. So <laughs> but like eventually I you know, I got there and you kind of get past all that you start to understand that people have got their own stuff going on and they're not really worried about a forty something mum with a giant yellow surfboard. They're they're just out there doing their own thing. And I think that's my a really mu- big lesson. My mum is um well, I can't tell her age; she'll kill me. But she's she's um, heading towards sort of retirement age, and um, she gets in a wetsuit and she goes down. And all at her local beach, there's like um, all the all the fifteen year old surfers and stuff. And she loves it because she goes down there and they give her the, the whole like head nod, like how are you doing it. She feels like she's one of them <laughs> with the cool kids. <laughs> That's she just, awesome. She, she has a she has a, a like a boogie board, a bodyboard, so she's not yeah. standing up or anything. She just catches the waves and gets yeah. dumped and has oh, a has a lovely time. But she she um she feels that she's in with the cool kids down the beach with the fifteen year olds. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that's that's so good. When when you said that you had the year of being brave, I mean surfing's surfing's probably not something that's an overly daunting task to a lot of people when you say the year of being brave what else was it about that year that you really um challenged yourself with oh gosh so so and I love that question so the way I tend to approach bravery or building your brave is to start with the least scary things first right so for me that was putting on a wetsuit and, and going and learning how to surf right Probably, so going down the beach to me would probably be one of my worst things yeah, to do. Yeah, and in a bathing it's, suit. It's di- and it's different. So this is what I learned is it's different for everybody. Yeah. So um, a couple of the, the big things were around body, for me, around body confidence. So yeah. I had quite a lot of um, stretch marks and scarring after kids, so that was one area. And then I think one of the most like courageous conversations I had with was with a surviving connection to my family and that was around the abuse that had happened when I was a child so from around second like second grade through to fourth grade there was a there was abuse that went on and no one was really conscious of it so I had such a fear for um, what the repercussions may be if I spoke up that I thought silence was being brave when I was a kid. So this mm. was a, a big exploration as how that definition of bravery had changed over time. So I thought I thought that was bravery was to, to be silent and to not speak up and to protect um, other people in my family. So when I finished year five, we had actually left Western Australia and moved and 
ended up living in Tassie, in Tasmania, and my surname changed. And I then didn't get to see my father for two years. Now, he's completely innocent. I just want to say that in in this whole thing. Um, But I had this question hanging over my head for, you know, well over well over 20 years, probably I would say close to, you know, getting on to 35 years around did that happen because I never spoke up and was the assumption made that my father was the perpetrator in things? So this it just used to bug me like why, why did we move so far away? Why did my name change and did me not speaking up have anything to do with that, like any bearing on it? So... So they obviously realised in year five that something was going on, something wasn't right. Well, so I wasn't, I wasn't sure if they did know or they didn't know. I just had this question right. around was was that part of it. So I was questioned once about um, the abuse, and I, and I denied it. Like I was that petrified that I just denied everything. I didn't, I didn't speak up at all. So I'd kind of reconciled that if I was going to find out if there was any potential knowledge of it, it it wasn't to be a witch hunt or anything like that. I just wanted to know whether they had any knowledge at all. And maybe there was a bit of like clearing things for my dad, even though he'd already passed away. So I reached out to, in in the book, he's named Hamish and framed it up to say, I would really like to have a conversation with you. Um, it's going to be a hard conversation for me to have and it's going to be a hard conversation for you to hear. But I'd really like to know if you're open to talking about things. It's to do with when my mother was alive and are you open to that? And they said yes and their response was, you need to be prepared that you may not like the answers that I give. And they didn't know what the topic was at all. They'd just been really open. So it was probably one of the hardest conversations that I had had in terms of a, a bravery perspective. So when I went to talk through things, I was like very calm. So I'd kind of worked through what the space was going to be like. I'd really kind of tried to detach myself from the outcome as much as possible um, to kind of go, this is just around increasing my understanding. It's not to be a witch hunt. If they if they had said no, they didn't want to just to talk to me, then I would have had to have been okay with that no. So it was understanding what potential outcomes could be before I even went into that space. I can't just clarify, was this uh, ha- this Hamish person, which obviously yeah. is not the, their real name? Yeah. Was this the person, the perpetrator? No. No, okay. they were they were a family, I'll say they were a family figure um, who was the only person that I knew of that could potentially have had some knowledge aside from the, okay. aside from the perpetrator, the perpetrator's family. So, okay. so he had like he had some knowledge. So when I'd reached out and said, "Would you be open to a conversation?" and he'd said yes, then I asked, like I asked these questions, and he did tear up, and it was hard to kind of watch. And he's kind of said, um, and so he knew that it was going to be part of the book as well, which was a really big thing. And he'd said yes, he did. And they did, and he goes, and we did try to do the right thing. We tried to ask. I thought that maybe something had gone on, but, you know, he said, you, like, you denied it. So we we tried to do the right thing. And, yes, we thought that maybe um, your father was involved, but, you, you know, it wasn't. And they said, we're, we're very, very sorry that um, 
or he said, I'm very sorry because there's no one else to be there, that, that, that you went through that, which was a challenging thing and then had to kind of make peace with that conversation and, and move on from it. Mm. So, it, so it, was a, it was a big one to talk through. So my mother had suffered from depression from when I was around about 11 severely um, where she wasn't really a what you try to kind of class as a functional parent or the functional parent I needed as a child. So there was a lot of yeah. parenting the parent growing up. Um, which you come to realise that you don't really have those skills when you're 11 and you certainly don't have them when, you, when you're 19 and trying to sort through, you know, a suicide that's a result of depression and then navigate your own grief and everybody else's grief at the same time. That's quite tricky to do. Mm. So... After that conversation, did that allow you to – were you at peace with the, as much as you could be? Yeah. Given the situation, did it give you a sense of peace and closure? Yes, at, like absolutely it did. I think it was around – I didn't want to go through my life just having that what if hanging over my head, like what if you had asked the question or what if you hadn't. So for me it, it was the closure – um, and I also had to kind of recognise that if they'd said no, that was also going to have to be closure. So I really had to explore what closure was going to look like. I'd already made peace with yeah. um, those events myself. So in terms of like healing from that, and that's a that's a whole other, I guess, a whole other journey. But I'd always kind of had this thing growing up that I didn't want a circumstance to dictate my future as much as possible but what I started to learn over this year of bravery is you can kind of think that you're working to avoid um, avoid hurt and pain and you end up acquiring other things so you can end up you know acquiring a bit of a workaholic tendency or you acquire so much strength that you don't know how to be soft anymore so it's really um, exploring your your own humanity or for me it was about exploring my own humanity as much as possible. I think from um, a non-clinical point of view, I think the workaholics probably avoiding um, qu- the quieting of the brain in terms of yep. your personal life. And I think um, what was the other one that you said? The workaholic, and what was the other one? And just becoming like super strong. So looking Lots at like self protection. Yeah, putting a shell up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And I think sometimes we can celebrate. I'm conscious of it. Sometimes I think it feels as though we can celebrate resiliency so much that we forget to really acknowledge the vulnerability that's required along the way. Like it it was never, those things, those things that um, have been experienced aren't supposed to be badges of honor. Like it's, Mm. it's, it's something that happened and it's something that has been learnt from. And I think what happened like as a result of the book, because I share um, my mum made some decisions at certain points in time that saw me at 16 living in a caravan park by myself, <laughs> which was fun. And that's despite being like the straight A kind of nerdy student. So you're like, oh, well, how, how am I here? But that was her, yeah. like her own journey. And um, the resources that were available back then are very different to what we have access to now. So, so she, I still believe even though she was going through that, people tend to do the best with what they have available in terms of their own um, mental resources, their own financial resources, their own emotional 
resources so that so for her I'm sure that she thought that was her best decision um, but it certainly didn't feel like it to live it so as you as you kind of start to explore those things you you work out well this is how I became that strong person which is great but how much of that do I want to take moving forward like I want my kids Mm. to know that emotions are okay that mum's not a superhero that um she's like that stuff happens in life and people do make mistakes including adults and that forgiveness is really important to move forward where you can that's that's such a hard balance though Mm. like because you don't want to work walk around being this marshmallow that anything can you know hurt you but you don't want to be so closed off that that you're detached from everything I mean that's such a hard balance to have that's right. So I think it's around learning as much as possible how to manage your emotions so that you can, um, you know, have like the full colouring inbox of them so that you're good with joy and that you know how to navigate sadness and, and what to do if sadness starts to be present more than um, is healthy, really. Mm. Is that something that you've been very mindful of considering your mum's struggles yeah absolutely absolutely so it's something that I talk to with women predominantly in programs as well around like health and well-being and the the importance of it so understanding Mm. some of those basic things and like I think I do I'm very conscious that in WA we're fortunate with lockdowns but I spend a lot in terms of thinking about the importance of exercise and community it's a really big one Um, the importance of connections and just um, that even though I'm not certified in anything related to gut and brain, but I do know that there are, you know, really big indicators between the nutrition that we have and what happens from a hormone perspective, or even for women who go through, who are, you know, going through the aging process, that hormone changes have a massive bearing on how we're thinking and feeling about ourselves. And sometimes um, they can feel like a roller coaster. So, so I think, you know, being aware of where those changes may come from and how they may play out is really important. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm very careful not to make any political statements about the lockdown on the podcast. Um, uh, And you can probably YouTube a lot of things in regards to why. Um, But certainly with lockdowns, and, and Melbourne has had a very extended lockdown on and off over the last 18 months that's just a fact it's not a political statement we've had about I posted about it on Instagram the other day we've had about uh, I think it was 540 odd days since our first lockdown started on the 30th of March and we're well over half of that time has been in the strictest of lockdowns which is can't go outside your home for any reasons apart from grocery shopping medical appointments um, or caregiving um, you're allowed an hour of exercise a day and um, obviously not allowed out to see friends or family or anything like that. So the result of 18 months, the majority of that 18 months being in those conditions, there has there's a huge disconnect in regards to community and, and so forth. Um, and it will be interesting to see how communities that have had such long uh, uh, lockdown situations reintegrate themselves into what is a normal interactions because people are when you go out to the supermarket people are testier like they just don't 
it's it's very interesting. Um, yeah, and and it will it will take. I mean, it will take time in terms of change. So people can go through, and I can speak to this from a professional perspective. People can go through change fatigue where um, there's too many changes to your environment happening at a certain point in time or the rules are shifting so much that it, it can create change fatigue. So from a very basic level, if you think about like we're coming, you know, in Australia, we're in September, we're coming into hopefully warmer months and, and not being like mm. freezing cold anymore. Um, mm. And as we shift into summer, you tend to see some of these patterns under normal conditions not not COVID conditions, so say pre-2020 conditions of, right, I'm going to get fit for summer, so I'm going to change my diet, I'm going to change my re- my exercise regime, I'm going to change all these different things. And quite often we lump all of these changes in at once and then they become overwhelming and then that's where we start to see things fall over. So that integration part or reintegrating and relearning is going to be really important to navigate this space because it's around looking at the micro changes to eventually get those macro um, wins however we're wanting to define them so that we can reintegrate and I personally um, I miss traveling and community I've got a lot of family on the east coast who I who Mm. I can't see but something that has helped that sense of community I think in terms of handling interactions for me at least, has been participating in like some global masterminds or um, global learning experiences where you get this cohort of people together and sometimes there'll be like 10 of you thrown in a Zoom room to manage conversations, which has been a real, uh, like a nice way as much as it's virtual, but a nice way to kind of keep some sense of community happening Mm. when you can't normally access it. So, um, but it is going to take time, I think. And people just rebuilding, like if you think about muscles that you don't use for a while, it's basically rebuilding those muscles again in terms of like the socialisation side of things out in public with people. Mm. Mm. You you mentioned that you moved back to Perth to surround yourself with um, surviving family members. Yeah. Did you get to a point where you had reconciled and reconnected with your father before he passed? Yes, I did. So that was that was an interesting, um, interesting relationship. So he and I were very like we we were never that distant, um, except for like the years that he was gone. Like in terms of communicating, we were okay. We actually did not get to speak to each other. We didn't speak to each other when my mother took her life. Um. Her funeral was a mess. So at that point in time, she had decided to end the relationship with my stepfather and start a new one. And my biological father kind of observed, you know, all of these things. So um, he said some pretty nasty things when she died and made some really nasty phone calls. So then I found myself navigating um, another family member who was not coping with her loss at all and had gone through self-harm and and attempts, which was like was a lot. Um, there was my father who his bitterness had kind of overtaken in terms of their failed relationship and they, they had one of those 
like divorces that that are just fueled by bitterness and and hate and and nastiness so trying to navigate all of that stuff was quite tricky um to the point that I asked him not to do a few things and for me speaking up for you know for other people involved in that situation he basically disowned me as his daughter for a couple of years and we used to we both worked in the city in Perth at this point in time so he would walk past me and look as though I didn't even exist so that was really really hard so it was like losing a mother and a father at the same time it was really hard Um, but it took a lot for me to even acknowledge that so it it wasn't until I had saved up enough money <laughs> um, working a few jobs that I wanted to leave Perth because for me Perth became this place that was just associated with child abuse, a mother taking her life and then a father not speaking to me anymore. So I was just like, you know what, as soon as I as soon as I turned 21, I was on a plane and I was out of there. Enough. And it took that flight for him to reach out and and or actually it took from my grandmother at that point in time to basically tell my father off and say you're being an idiot and you need to apologize to her or else I think they were her words my nana was a, a pretty strong woman um for him to basically get on the phone and you know clear his clear his voice and <clears throat> I have a letter here from your grandmother for you and I heard that you're leaving and you should come and collect it to start that reconciliation process so so that was tricky. So yes, we did before he died. We re- we had reconciled and and were like it, it was okay. I don't think it was ever the same. Um mm. but like it was as good as it could be. When so you've had your your mother pass at 19. Yeah. Um your sister passed when you were how old? 34. And you're 29 when your father passed away. Yeah. That's a lot to go yeah. through and then the early childhood trauma. When you set out having this year of being brave, what was the end what was the end goal? So for me it was really around define like redefining my own definitions of it, I think, in terms of what bravery looked like. So was it about physical bravery? Because I went, I went and like hiked the Grand Canyon, so I'd set myself this this other big goal to do. Once again, I took Lauren along for that one. Um, I'd like worked to overcome the the body image such like issues that I'd had, and also put myself like as a you know as a single parent because our so fortunately for my kids, me and their dad co-parent well, and that's. I attribute that to the messy divorce that my parents had because I never, ever wanted my children to experience that. So there's always, you know, something positive can come out of something shitty. Um, But really that year of brave was to kind of look at what was the example that I was setting for my kids? What did I Mm. want them to know about life and what, you know, what you couldn't, couldn't do in terms of limits. And I did put myself back out into Dateland, which like the last time I had been out there, there was no Facebook, like Facebook didn't exist last time I was in a major relationship. So, um, oh my gosh. That's that was probably like in terms of scary and brave, like aside from those big conversations, that's a scary thing to do. It really is, because all of a sudden it's like, well, someone else may see me naked and last time anyone saw, you know, the like 
no one else had seen my pre-baby body naked except their dad. Um, so that was a that was a hugely for me scary thing to do. Um, and I hate to say like spoiler spoiler alert on this, but um, part of that was getting like getting that body confidence back a little bit again, yeah. and and it was like a really really dorky awkward experience to stand in front of the mirror and say something kind which I believe certain people can find super challenging as to like look in the mirror so I would start with I I, I would find that yeah yeah it's hard to do so really um, hard to do really hard to do so now nowadays thanks to some hormone and, and health stuff going on I've gained back some of the weight that I had lost and I just have to kind of go you know what I'm more about the health than than the number um beautiful babe but, the, but, the, beautiful. but these but these days I can look in the mirror and go you're looking pretty good today good <laughs> on you I, I think can... it's interesting because a lot of men have also body confidence issues as well but I don't think that they understand just how severely debilitating it can be for women. Yeah. And yeah, it's yeah. It's so, different, oh, dude, I think. Like stuff stuff moves where you don't really want it to move to. Um <laughs> just, just does. So I'll tell you a story offline after but, this about all right. <laughs> oh honestly, yeah, honestly. Um but so that was I mean for in terms of the goal of the book there's a line that sits at the start in terms of like where you know I thought I was being brave and at the end it kind of comes down to I taught her to be brave which is about me teaching my daughter and like and my son as well he's a little bit younger but teaching them what brave actually is which is it's, mm. it's a multitude of things it's not just one thing it's around um being brave enough to try something new or to retry something old that you failed at before and also creating the safe space and, and being kind enough for others who are doing the same, um, which I think is really important as you go through that. So I can share like one of one of those embarrassing stories and it was a big lesson for me. Um, so during the book, there is a character named Baker who <laughs> looks like the love child of Bradley Cooper and Chris Hemsworth. That's the best way. Oh, hello. I can, I, hello. I, I, exactly. <laughs> And he he worked as a um, acupuncturist, and I'd had a couple of injuries, and my personal trainer had recommended that I go see him. So there's this whole bit of like being on a massage table in your mum undies, and then being <laughs> asked questions by, you know, a human being of that level of hotness, and like being face down, so you can't do anything. You've got no visual cues to understand why they're asking you you know so are you dating anyone or are you doing this I'm like why are you asking me like Bradley Cooper's love child like what is going on yeah (laughs) don't yes you can take Um, me out for a drink anytime I'm single yeah so well I ended up um I ended up confronting him about these questions and I'm like look I I feel really awkward and like this is embarrassing I'm basically like talking to a rock god and he'd turn around and goes are you are you for real like you're the one who's intimidating you've got your business together and all this stuff together I'm the one who finds it hard to have the conversations and that was a big kind of realization for me to kind of go oh please um, tell me you ended up shagging him oh I can't say (laughs) (laughs) I'm totally gonna tell you that it's a yes (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> Love well, it. Things just didn't. Things just didn't pan out, which is fine. So I I now have like a there is an amazing amazing man in my life, which is lovely, but. Bradley Cooper and Chris Hemsworth love child did teach me that. Did not big stay for very long. That, hey? Oh, I thought he taught you some no. other stuff, but you know. <laughs> he did. Oh, he, he, uh, there might be some offline conversations, I think, Pete. Um, oh my God, he, that's um, hilarious. He taught me a massive lesson around just like making an assumption about people. Yeah. And that you just you just never know what someone else has got going on, and that was kind of reinforced after the book came out because most of my um, like touch points within my community have known me as like this strong, like cheery person who always walks into the coffee shop looking like really happy and everything. And then one of the baristas, she's a young girl in there, she saw me walking and she's like, "I read your book," and then her face has just dropped, and I've gone, "Oh, thanks," and she's gone, "I'm so sorry, I never would have guessed that." that had happened to you and it was just like well people have people can be very good at putting on a mask Masking, because you don't you yeah. don't want to show like walk around and say hey would you like to know about my shitty life um but it's just it's just a, a reminder that every you know there, there are not too many people on this planet who have not had to face some kind of adversity and just to be kind because you just don't know what's going on for someone behind the scenes mm. Mm. Tell me about uh, – let's go into the more lighthearted stuff. Tell me about yeah. the fireman, fireman situation. The fireman situation? Oh, my fireman gosh. situation. <laughs> oh. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, there's, there's actually – there's more than one fireman story, so I could like – Oh, we can hear you. them all. Yeah, you can. You can hear all the fireman stories. All right. So, so fireman, fireman situation number one um, was when I lived in North Queensland, and this is probably the the best the best one. When I lived in North Queensland, I used to go sailing with a group of friends, and I lived in like an old Queenslander, um, maybe not in the best part of Townsville. I don't know, but like I had bars on my windows, and then there were like like the traditional slats that you have to let the breeze in like with a with yep. a Queenslander. And anyway So Queenslanders for those that aren't in Australia, they're raised houses and they're raised because they on on stilts like, yeah, so they get flood. the breeze to because yeah. Queensland's tropical. It's a tropical climate. It's Australia's big people. Yes. And and yeah. also for like floodwaters and those kinds of things. So we'd been away on this amazing sailing trip. Um, got home, I'd pegged out my washing. So this was in like in my 20s. And um, then as North Queensland happens to have with the tropics, a massive deli, like rain, just downpour of rain came through. So I'm all of a sudden thinking, oh, I've got nothing to wear. I was supposed to go and meet my friends for dinner because I also had no food in my house or anything. And we just literally all got back from this, this trip on the boat. So I'd... Um, I I had raced out the back to grab my washing from the line, just wearing a towel. So I jumped out of the shower, raced out to grab stuff. A breeze came through and blew my back door shut, which had a deadbolt on it. And my front door was also locked. So there I am standing in a towel in the pouring rain in Queensland and it was like during the the Christmas, like it was kind of during the Christmas New Year's break. So 
at that point in time, like a, a lot of trades up there tend to take a break and they don't want to answer their phone. Yeah. So I had no choice but to basically um, rock over to my next door neighbor's house, Deb, and say, um, can you, like, can I borrow your phone, please? Because I need to see if I can get back into my house. So I'm looking like a, a drowned rat in a massive way and just wearing wet clothes at this point. So tried ringing a locksmith, no answer. Tried ringing my um, real estate agent, said like, oh, sorry, we can't help you till Monday. Like, no, we're, we're closed. Like, you'll have to try a locksmith. I'm like, I've tried a locksmith. So then she says, <laughs> she goes, well, let me see if um, the guys can help. I'll give Dickie and the boys a buzz, me not knowing who Dickie and the boys is. So I'm like, okay. She's like, yep, they'll be so on their way. Clo- are, are you clothed or in a towel? I'm, so at this point, I'm just wearing wet clothes off my washing line. So I've got like okay. a basically wet T-shirt and shorts on. It's not like not the ideal <laughs> look. Um, so anyway, within five minutes, a fire truck rocks up out the front of my house being Dickie and the boys. And I'm just thinking, you have got to be kidding me because I didn't realise that she'd worked for, like, the SES. So, like, this whole fire truck rocks up and, like, six firemen pile out and, like, oh, what seems to be the problem? Like, please don't break any windows because I don't I don't want to pay that money to, like, the bond agents or whatever. So they walk around the house and they spot, like, in the bathroom where I started this mishap in the first place, there's, like, a tiny window right so like the the windows with slats and maybe like a you know no more than a, a foot and a bit wide and maybe yeah. like two feet high so they're they're not huge these like above the toilet windows so like right we can we can take all the slats out and we'll remove the fly screen and we'll stick you back we'll basically stick you back in the house and I've got okay so then I was fire lifted by firemen back into my house <laughs> after they had broken everything and I'm thinking I hope that I can get away with my sailing friends not finding out about this because I'd had to let them know why I was running late for dinner as well and so then as they're asking questions they're like oh so you know what have you been up to I'm like oh yeah you know I've been sailing I'm supposed to go and meet my friend for dinner and they've gone oh who's that I've gone oh they're like what boat do you sail on I'm like oh Sitka and they've gone oh with Danielle Williams oh we know her wait till she hears about this and I'm like oh no no. so they all found out um but yes so technically I have been rescued by firemen but not in the (laughs) the (laughs) not in the flames coming out of a building sense in in the opposite way of being put back in your house because you locked yourself out in the pouring rain in North Queensland where did the frog phobia come from? Oh, that came from my father. So parents got to love them. Um, we lived across the um, the road from a lake when I was little and we would get these massive, like they're called motorbike frogs here. Um, but that, to me anyway, as a little per like as a little kid, they were huge, like I'm talking like these things were like ginormous, probably like six were feet they cane, big. Were they cane toads? No, not cane toads, like just regular just regular <laughs> frogs. Oh, um, okay. But he used to think it was hilarious to pick them up and hold them by their legs because we'd get them in our swimming pool and chase me oh, with them and go, blah, 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 like this. So I was petrified, absolutely petrified of frogs for just as like 
for a long time and I still get yeah. like if I see them I still get heart palpitations <laughs> but oh, I work really no! hard to overcome my fear of them that was also on my list through this year of brave was to overcome my fear of frogs but that one took place before the big conversations so for me it was around all right I'm gonna like, I'm gonna face my fear of frogs um they also made a great appearance up in North Queensland though which used to add to um add to the experience so I had tried like probably I don't know where it was in the timeline of firemen coming to rescue me and I had tried to overcome my fear of frogs when I lived in North Queensland too because that's just like frog central that place yeah um and once again I'd gone into my bathroom to see this tiny little frog like I ended up nicknaming him Sid he does feature in my children's book that will one day get published um and I'm sure this frog is looking at me with like some gangster attitude. So he's sitting there on the on the toilet rim, going, "What are you going to do about it?" And he's tiny, like he would have been no bigger than my thumb, really. But I'm just like, okay, I can do this. So I went to get a piece of like newspaper, thinking that I'd coax Sid, as I nickname him now, to get on this newspaper, and then I'll put him outside. And. Uh, Sid jumps onto my shower screen and I freak out and I'd been sailing and I do not for the life of me know why I'd worn like a denim skirt sailing this evening, but I had. But anyway, I walk into the bathroom and Sid the frog is sitting there on the, the rim of the toilet. So I've got this big piece of newspaper and I'm thinking, right, I'll coach him, like I'll kind of coax him onto the newspaper. But he doesn't agree with that. So he like jumps on the shower screen and I jump. So I'm like, right, oh, like I kind of gather my courage again. I think, okay, I'll attempt it again. And I go to move towards Sid with this big piece of newspaper and he's just like, screw that lady. And he jumps onto my leg and then starts doing the frog thing up my thigh. Going, <laughs> and I just froze in fear and started screaming. And all I could do was jump up and down and yell, get off, get off, and slowly moved out to like the my backyard. Um, and stood there jumping up and down before he eventually got off my leg and landed in the bushes. But oh, like even now, like my my heart rate, my heart rate has gone <coughs> oh, up. Just no, thinking no. about it. Did, so have you I seen know, the footage of um? Have you seen the footage from the UK of the woman of what happened with her when there was a spider? No. So there's like a TikTok or YouTube video coming around, and there's. So what happened was this woman, was, a spider ran under her bed at the same time a moth came into her room and she screamed bloody murder and her neighbours thought that she was being murdered and they called the police and the riot squad or something turned up and the video is her laughing with these police officers looking under the bed for the spider for her. <laughs> oh. Oh, look, at least I the have... neighbours called the cops. <laughs> Oh gosh, well that's true. I mean, I had so I had been known to when I was living in North Queensland call my friends to come and do a frog removal for me because I was too scared. And like I've worked to overcome my fear and hold one, but I still don't like them. They feel like someone's left a chewed up piece of gum underneath the table and you've accidentally touched it. I just I'm, I'm, I know they're great for the environment. Like I had, they're cute I, as I don't, man. They, they're yeah, they're, they're kind of yeah in their own way, I guess. But then um, I don't have a phobia. Or, I, don't I don't have a phobia. But like I, so, I don't dislike them, but I certainly don't want to be friends with them. But now, like being a bonus mum, and there's like three boys. They know about this fear of frogs, and I don't know which oh, of my no. kids told them. But 
they think it's hilarious and the littlest one, Richie, he catches them and, like, he he wears them like they're part of a, like, I don't know, Superman symbol, like symbol or something. And he actually wears them and he's like, I'm going to come get you, Belle. Like he's FaceTimed me before when I've been out. He's going, look what I've got. And he's got this like massive frog on his little little chest. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm not coming home until that thing's gone. I don't care. It's like, I will wait outside. (laughs) So they think it's hilarious, but I wanted to overcome those kinds of fears because I didn't want to pass them on to my kids. I think that's probably been yeah. the you biggest okay? thing is thinking about like the legacy stuff. Are you okay with um snakes? Yeah. Like fine with yeah. snakes, fine with lizards, happy to hold a snake. I was going to say Queensland, Queensland you would have been heaps of snakes, heaps of pythons and stuff. Yeah. They don't bother me at all. Mm. So. Mm. Um, yeah, but, but you yeah. weren't also terrorised as a child. No, that's right. You can have that childhood trauma. That's right. Yeah. So it is. So it's it's interesting to look at those things and kind of go, well, what do I want to do with it? So like in, in any does, area really. When you did the, the year of bravery, remind mm. me, was that before you started or after you started doing the coaching? That was after I started doing the coaching. So I'd been coaching okay. for a while um, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, really helping women look at what they wanted to do and particularly if they no longer wanted to get into that nine-to-five space or it just wasn't working for them anymore. It was around helping them work out and like drawing on my change background, I guess, from corporate, helping them yeah. work out what what was right for them. So what was their definition of success, not anybody else's, um, and really rebuilding belief because sometimes when we go through life events, our self-confidence gets knocked and mm. it's it's really about looking at um, what you know what is possible and what's the smallest step that's going to get you there instead of getting overwhelmed by a huge vision or, or thinking about how you could do things differently. So and then you know taking them through like the Clifton Strengths Finder stuff to get them to understand their top five talents and and really remember the good things about yourself. I think it's so important when you're going through tricky times to as much as you can remember what's good about yourself. How has the feedback, you obviously got that feedback from the Brewster, but how's the feedback been from your family and those close to you about the book? Yeah, really good. Um, Which is awkward as a new brave. There were were a few, I think, on my mother's side who were very concerned because, you know, skeletons coming out of cupboards. But I was yep. very conscious of how I wrote that book. I didn't want to paint anyone in a terrible light, but I did want to talk about some big themes in terms of um, mental health and, and what it can be like to um, be the child of a parent with, with mental health challenges and to really encourage yeah. people to get help for those things and to not give up because you needed for such a long time, like not just when you, your kid hits 18, you needed for like the adult parent stuff. Um, which is important so so it really surprised me um, in a good way with the with family in terms of their response my older half brother in particular he kind of reached out and said I didn't know that you had been through any of that Um, and I think there were maybe one or two who like weren't that great with it but for me it's kind of like well you haven't necessarily been present in my life so I'm not going to kind of accept your judgments right now either so Mm. 
So that you do need, I think if you're going to tell a personal story, it's really thinking about um, the outcomes of that as well because not everyone's going to like what you want to say but it's also about, for me, it was being conscious about my kids will grow up one day and read this book and what do I want them to think? Mm. Mm. Where can people find you for your coaching services, Belle? And I know you do um, guest speaking as well. Mm-hmm. Where can people find you? Is it just your bellockerby.com website? That is the best ways to that's the best place to find me. Otherwise over on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram, no problem at all. And the so. book is Awkward is the New Brave. Please go and read it. It is amazing and you'll laugh and shed a tear at the same time. It's an absolute joy to have you on Bell. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, V. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 